Our text for this morning, people of God, is Psalm 21. This psalm bears a close relationship with Psalm 20. In Psalm 20, we saw that the people blessed their king in the name of the God of Jacob. And in this psalm, we see the king as having received that blessing which the people have pronounced upon him and rejoicing in that blessing which he has received. The blessing of the people, therefore, has been effective. The king has received the salvation of God. He has received the desires of his heart. This psalm, however, takes the form of a prayer. As we saw in connection with Psalm 20, that takes the form of a blessing pronounced by the people on their king. This psalm takes the form of a prayer. There are only two lines in the psalm, or two verses in the psalm, rather, which are not directly addressed to God, and even they, I think, can really be considered as part of the prayer. First, verse 7, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. And then the last two lines of verse 9, The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. It's not unusual in the course of a prayer to in the Psalms, to have the people of God talking about God in the third person. And I think that's what we have here in this psalm. The psalm is a prayer of the congregation. That's not clear to us until the very last line of the psalm. We don't know until the very last line of the psalm who's talking. But in the very last line of the psalm we find it. We will sing and praise your power. It's a prayer of the congregation, which praises God for his blessings on the king and for the defeat of their enemies. So the congregation says, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. And the congregation also says, verse 8, Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. And it's a psalm, of course, about our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of this psalm as the king of God's people. It is a psalm then which celebrates the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ in having been crowned as the king of God's people and exalted to sit at the right hand of God. The psalm that celebrates the victory of God's people through Christ over the enemies of God and of his people. Now, one of the interesting things that we have to notice about this psalm is the many layers of action and interaction in the psalm. The first thing, of course, that we have here is the king in the presence of God calling on the Lord. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. And the Lord then responding to the king with answers to his prayers, with the request that he has asked. You have then the king rejoicing in response to those blessings of the Lord. The king praying, the Lord responding, the king rejoicing in response to that. But then you have in addition to that, the people observing this interaction between the king and God and observing the king's prayer and observing the blessing that the Lord gives in response to it and rejoicing with the king. 
And not only rejoicing with the king, but expressing their praise and thanks to God along with the king. So that in the first part of the psalm, you have these three parties, the Lord and the king and the people interacting together and speaking together. In the second part of the psalm, on the other hand, you have the Lord dealing with the enemies. You have the enemies trying to hide. Your right hand, your hand will find all your enemies implies that the enemies are trying to hide from the Lord. You have, again, the king participating in this activity of the Lord, for it's through the king that the Lord accomplishes the defeat of his enemies. And you have the people, again, seeing all of this taking place and praising the Lord for what he is doing to the enemies. So you also have this interchange between the Lord and his people with regard to the enemies and the Lord's action towards his enemies. And on top of all this, and embracing all of this activity, all these layers of action in the psalm, you have David himself, the king of Israel, writing the psalm, preparing it for the people as their sweet psalmist, as well as their king, and the people then singing the psalm in the presence of God and the king. So all of these marvelously intertwined layers of action and interaction in the psalm. It's a very complex sort of structure in the psalm. But people, it reflects, the people of God, it reflects exactly what happens in our worship. When we come into worship, we come into the presence of God and into the presence of our king. And we see our king rejoicing in that pre presence of God, in the blessings that God has given him. And we rejoice with him, and we give praise with him to our God. We see God in that worship speaking his word in such a way as to put his enemies to flight. And we see the enemies departing from him in fear. We see the king accomplishing these purposes of God. And we participating in what the king has given us to do. We then use this psalm in worship to reflect on and to celebrate the work of God among us during worship, as well as in every other part of our lives. Let's consider this psalm under the theme, Rejoicing in the King's Salvation. Rejoicing in the King's Salvation. First of all, the joy of the King, verses 1 to 7. Secondly, the defeat of the enemies, verses 8 to to 12, and finally the praise of the congregation, verse 13. The joy of the king is first then, verses 1 to 7. Now when we look at those verses, we're going to set aside for a moment anyway, verse 7. Verse 7 is of a different character than verses 1 to 6. It's the verse that explains the king's trust in the Lord and the means through which all the blessings talked about in verses 1 to 6 come to him and therefore deserves a separate treatment. So the first six lines, or the first six verses first, 
Now, when you look at those verses, you see certain words being repeated in those verses. And certain words being repeated in such a way that the lines kind of pair together. But not in the typical Hebrew parallelism where you have two lines that are paired next to each other, but these pairs of lines seem to be kind of randomly scattered throughout these six verses. Let me see if I can illustrate that for, by a few examples. First of all, you have verse 1, the first line, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. But if you go to the last line of verse 6, you read, You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. So the king's joy is in both of those lines, but they're not together. If you look at the second line of verse 1, in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice, and then go down to verse 5, his glory is great in your salvation. The repetition of that word, salvation, happens. Then if you look at the first line of verse 3, you meet him with the blessings of goodness, and go down to the first line of verse 6, you have made him most blessed forever. The word repeat, another word repeated. And in the second line of verse 3, you set the crown of pure gold upon his head, and parallel to that, the second line of verse 5, honor and majesty you have placed upon him. So you do have some typical parallelisms here. For example, in verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. And in verse Four, he asked life from you and gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. But the other lines at least seem to be paired somewhat randomly. That is, they're not brought together in the kind of parallelism that we normally expect. It's almost as if the psalmist wrote the lines of this psalm and then cut them apart and shook them up in a basket and pulled them out of the basket one by one and pasted them together again in the order in which he took them from the basket. But of course there's much more order and artistry in the lines than that. And that also we need to see. We've noted already that lines 1 and the second line of verse 6 are parallel. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. And in the second line of verse 6, you have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Well, those lines come at the beginning and the end of this section and enclose or enfold all the rest of the section. What we have here then is an observation of the joy of the king in the presence of the Lord and because of the strength and salvation which has been given to him by the Lord. And that idea of the king's joy is the idea that stands out in the psalm. The joy of the king in the salvation of the Lord. That enfolds all the rest. In the second place, note that not only is line one of the psalm parallel to the last line of verse six, but it's also parallel to the second line of, the, of its own verse. And in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. So this idea of joy is repeated three times in the psalm. Three times the psalm speaks of the joy of the king. 
In addition to that, verses 1 and 2 of the psalm may be considered a kind of summary of verses 3 to 6. So you have the king in verse 1 rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord. You have him rejoicing because the Lord has responded to his prayers and granted him his heart's desire. And then, in verses 3 to 6, that joy is explained in detail. What did the Lord do for him? Verses 3 to 6 show us what the Lord did. And then again, if you look at those four verses, 3 to 6, you see that those four verses begin and end with the idea of blessing. The first line of verse 3, for you meet him with the blessings of goodness, and the first line of verse 6, so you have made him most blessed forever. So you not only have verses 1 to 6 enfolded in this idea of the king's joy, but you also have verses 3 to 6 enfolded in this idea of the king's blessing. It's a marvelously beautiful way of expressing the joy and blessedness of the king and of explaining that blessedness to us. The joy of the king, then, in the blessings bestowed upon him that are the theme of these first six verses. Now we need to take a closer look, of course, at the details of those verses. First of all, we have the king rejoicing in verses 1 and the last line of verse 6 in the strength, in the salvation, and in the presence of the Lord. He shall have joy in your strength, in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. The king has come into the presence of the Lord. That's one of the key ideas of this psalm. The king stands in the presence of the Lord. And he's glad to be there. The king receives in the presence of the Lord... Salvation. And as we'll see later on, that salvation is particularly here, salvation from his enemies. The king receives that salvation in the presence of the Lord by a granting to him of the Lord's strength. Those three ideas then are connected. The king rejoicing in the presence of the Lord because of the salvation the Lord has given him through the strength that the Lord has shown on his behalf. We find also that the Lord answers his prayers, answer to prayer. The king comes into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord hears the petitions which he makes to him. Now, people of God, we should notice again the connection here with Psalm 20. Remember how the people blessed their king in Psalm 20? Verse 4, may he grant you according to your heart's desire. And again at the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now look at verse 2 of Psalm 21. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. So again, you have that tie-in to Psalm 20. 
the Lord then, when the king comes into his presence, meets him there. Verse 3, you meet him with the blessings of goodness. The king draws near to the Lord, draws into the, comes into the throne room of God, and does not find God absent from his throne room. But God comes into the throne room to meet him there. The, God is in fact delighted that the king has come and glad to meet him there in that throne room in order to answer his petitions. This is the first requisite, the very foundation of effective prayer, people of God, that when we come into the presence of the Lord, into that place where we expect to find him, he be there to meet us, that we do not make our petitions to an empty room, but that the Lord comes to dwell with us in his house. And we should notice, finally, the blessings that the Lord grants to him. They are called, in verse 3, the blessings of goodness. You meet him with the blessings of goodness. Those two words, blessings and goodness, are almost equivalent. It's almost a topology to speak of blessings of goodness. Of course blessings are of goodness. But the point here is that this goodness is the goodness that belongs to the Lord. The Lord is good. The Lord is the one who is the overflowing fountain of all good. And when the king comes into the presence of the Lord to make his petitions, God is glad to open wide to him the doors of heaven and to pour out on him in his presence all the riches of his storehouse. He gives to him out of his own everlasting and immeasurable bounty. One of the blessings he gives him is a crown. You set a crown, pure gold, upon his head. The Lord anoints him to be king, establishes him as king of his people, and increases his royal majesty in the eyes of his people and in the eyes of the nations around him. That crown is of pure gold. That's important, I think. When you look at the construction of the tabernacle as it was ordered in the last part of the book of Exodus, you find that the things that were nearest to God in the tabernacle were made of gold. The covering of the ark, the mercy seat, the cherubim who sat on the mercy seat, the altar of incense, the lampstand, the table of showbread, all these were gold or covered with gold. The things that were farther away from God, like the altar of burnt offering and the labor and the utensils used at those places, were of bronze. And some other fittings of the tabernacle, also farther away from God, were of silver. So this idea of gold is the idea of righteousness. Righteousness which has a right to come into the presence 
of God, as it were, into the very presence of God in the most holy place. And the fact that the king wears a crown of pure gold means that by his righteousness, he has a right to enter into the presence of God himself. When the high priest went into the most holy place, he had to wear on his turban that plate of gold, remember? Similar to a crown. That plate of gold that said, Holiness to the Lord. The king's crown indicates his holiness, his righteousness before the Lord. That's his first blessing then. The blessing of righteousness upon which is founded his royal majesty. Secondly, life is given him. Verse 4, he asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now what we read there is interesting because what we read is that the king asked life. And what he asked for, of course, was not just a continuation of physical existence. He asked for the loving kindness of the Lord, which was life to him. He asked life in the presence of God. And God gave it, and not only gave what he asked, but gave him everlasting life, length of days, forever and ever. And that's literally true, of course. Not just of David, but of his great successor. And finally, his blessings are glory and honor and majesty. Verse 5. His glory is, of course, the external visible evidences of his royalty. His children, his wealth, his table, his garments, his accoutrements, his servants, his armies, his victories, and all these different things are evidences of his majesty, the glory that is visible to the eyes of his people. His honor is what he receives from his people and also from other nations as they see that glory. He is honored by them. They recognize his royal majesty and pay due respect to that majesty. And the majesty is the dignity inherent in him as a royal person. He carries himself as royalty and because he is royal. His dignity, his superiority to others shows itself. In all of these, the king excels. His glory is great in your salvation, honor and majesty you have placed upon him. The king's joy, therefore, is easy to explain. Notice, in fact, that we read of the king's desire and of the king's request, but that the only request that's specifically mentioned in this section is the request for life. He asked life. We do not read that he asked for a crown. We do not read that he asked for everlasting life. We do not read that he asked for glory and honor and majesty. He asked for life. But the Lord gave him much more than that. The Lord was very bountiful 
and very gracious towards him. Now verse 7. This explains how it was that these blessings came to him. The king trusts in the Lord. The peculiar characteristic of this king is that he trusts in the Lord. It's the prominent characteristic of most of the kings of this world that they trust in themselves, that they boast of what they have accomplished and that they make displays of glory for their people to see in order that their people may honor and glorify their own persons. This king does not act that way. This king does not make a display of glory in order that the people may honor him particularly. This king is not interested in taking to himself the credit of his victories. This king is not interested in establishing and boasting about what he has accomplished. The fundamental characteristic of this king is that he trusts in the Lord. He recognizes that he is a servant of the Lord called to do the Lord's will, and successful in doing the Lord's will only by the blessing of the Lord upon him, only as the Lord grants him salvation and strength. This king recognizes, therefore, his need for the Lord's mercy. It's a very peculiar thing for a king to seek mercy. A king would be very much inclined always to say he needs no mercy. He is superior in other men to other men in that regard. That he may show mercy to them, but he has no need of the mercy of men. But this king recognizes his need for the mercy of the Most High and sees and understands that his establishment as king, his immovability in his position as king, depends on that mercy, through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So it's through the king's trust in the Lord then that all these blessings come. Now the other thing that we have to notice about verse 7 is that this verse is not only the conclusion of the first section, but also the pivot on which the psalm turns to the second section, verses 8 to 12. The king trusts in the Lord, yes, and through that trust in the Lord receives all those blessings that come to him in verses 3 to 6, and by those blessings rejoices in the Lord, verses 1 and 6. But also, through the king's trust in the Lord, he shall not be moved, that is, he shall not be moved by his enemies. So that trust of the king is also the foundation upon which is built his victory over his enemies. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, the defeat of the enemies, verses 8 to 12. Now there are some commentators who in looking at this part of the psalm say, this is not addressed to the Lord, but this is addressed to the king. And the people are saying, of the king, not of the Lord, your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. I think that's incorrect. This psalm is a psalm that is a psalm of prayer to the Lord, a psalm of praise 
to the Lord for what he has accomplished for the king and against the enemies. If we look at it from that perspective, then we see, people of God, a great contrast between the first part of the psalm and the second part of the psalm. In the first part of the psalm, we see how the Lord blesses the king. In this part of the psalm, we see how the Lord defeats the enemies. He deals differently with different people. We have here a picture of the antithesis from the perspective of the Lord's own dealings with men. The Lord, in his dealings with men, makes a separation between them, deals in one way with some and in another way with others. With his king and those who belong to his king, he deals bountifully, graciously, pouring out on them the blessings of goodness. With his enemies, he deals in his anger and for their destruction. Now the second thing we have to say about this section in general is that though we've said that this is not addressed to the king, it doesn't mean that the king's not involved here. The king's still very much in the minds of the people as they utter this prayer before the Lord because it is first of all and primarily their king who needs the salvation of the Lord. And that salvation is to come to him through the defeat of of the enemies. There are enemies threatening him. And the people see his need of salvation and here now rejoice in the salvation of their king. Because their enemies are being defeated. But more than that, also, the king is the instrument of the destruction of the enemies. It is God's hand, the Lord's hand, that finds his enemies. His right hand finds those who hate him. It's the Lord doing these things, but the Lord doing them through his king. So that almost it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the king here or about the Lord. Because the Lord, the king, is the Lord's instrument in accomplishing these things. Now the verses 8 to 10 say three things about what the Lord will do to his enemies. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. The implication is, of course, that the enemies seek to hide from him. They are terrified by his presence. They run away and seek to hide, but they cannot hide. Wherever they may go, however cunningly they may conceal themselves from his presence, the Lord's hand finds them. The Lord's hand goes out through all the earth, to the farthest corners of the earth, to the depths of the sea if necessary, to the heights of heaven itself, to the grave, wherever they may seek to hide themselves from him, the Lord's hand pursues them and finds them. We're reminded of the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. 
Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The terror of these kings as they flee from the presence and anger of the Lord. And the Lord finds them all. The second thing that is said about the enemies is that the Lord consumes them with the fire of his anger. His anger burns against them and his anger is very hot, consumes them completely and utterly. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Notice that the psalm speaks there of the time of his anger. The time of his anger. The Lord sometimes delays the uh, pouring out of his anger on his enemies. But there is a time appointed for that anger. When the time comes, that anger will certainly be poured out. That time of the Lord's anger is fundamentally the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, in his incarnation, and secondly, in the day of judgment. The third thing that is said about these enemies of the king is that their offspring will be destroyed. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. Now that does not mean that the Lord punishes the children for the sins of their fathers. The Lord punishes men for their own sins. He does not punish children for the sins of their fathers. But what needs to be recognized, people of God, is that these enemies of the Lord, as they beget their offspring, train them as rebels against the Lord. Train them to be opposed to the Lord. Bring them up not in the fear of the Lord, but in the hatred of the Lord. And if their children follow the example and training of their fathers and continue as rebels against Jehovah, then Jehovah brings upon them his anger, just as he brought it upon their fathers. That's the idea of the second commandment, and that's the idea here. Their offspring have learned from the example and training of their fathers to be opposed to the Lord, and therefore they too fall under his wrath. He removes them from the earth. And by removing them from the earth, of course, their offspring from the earth, he cuts them off in their generations so that they cannot continue. It's the end of them. He does this because they intend evil against him. They devise a plot 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands in sunder and cast away their cords from us. These nations of the earth, people of God, we must recognize are fundamentally opposed to the Lord in their purposes. They want to establish not a kingdom that belongs to the Lord, but a kingdom that belongs to themselves, apart from the Lord. They want no kingdom of the Lord. They want a kingdom of man. And they are determined that if any purpose fails in the history of the world, it will be not their purpose, but the Lord's purpose. They intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. They cannot be successful. And they cannot be successful, according to verse 12, because of the terror of Jehovah. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. They come to fight against the Lord, and of course they fight against the Lord by fighting against his people. They come to fight against the Lord, they find the Lord standing to oppose them, with his bow ready and an arrow on the string. And the presence of the Lord is so terrifying to them that they turn their backs before him and run away. <clears throat> Now there's an interesting connection here also between this verse and an earlier verse in the psalm. Verse 6. Verse 6 we read, You have made him exceedingly glad with your face. You could translate it that way. You have made him exceedingly glad with your face. The king stands in the presence of the Lord and the Lord looks on the king. And the king, as a result of that looking of the Lord on him, rejoices. Now we see the wicked coming, as it were, into the presence of the Lord. And the Lord stands opposed to them with his bow strung and an arrow on the string. And that arrow signifies his word. With his arrow on the string and stands to their faces. Just as the king stood before the face of the Lord, now the Lord stands to the face of the enemies. And the consequence is not blessedness or joy, but terror. As I said, the arrows of the Lord are his word. Just as the sword of the Spirit in the New Testament is the word of God, so the arrows of God in the Old Testament are especially his word. It is the word of God that comes against these enemies. That too is part then of the blessings of the king and of the people. So they conclude with praise. Verse 13, the last part of the psalm, the praise of the congregation. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now, again, there's a connection with the earlier part of the psalm. There's a repetition here of a phrase found in verse 1, Lord, in your strength. And that's found also in verse 1, in your strength. 
O Lord. The king shall have joy in your strength in verse 1. There we see the king rejoicing in the strength of the Lord. Here the people addressing the Lord say, Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. They desire, of course, not that he, his strength be increased. It cannot be increased. He has all power in heaven and on earth. He has been infinitely exalted above men, and his exaltation cannot be greater than it is. But they desire that that glory and exaltation of the Lord be recognized, and be recognized by all peoples and nations of the world. They conclude then with their own praise, we will sing and praise your power. The congregation itself now, observing all this that we've been talking about, singing and praising the power of the Lord. Singing and praising that power of the Lord with this psalm. That's one of the very interesting interactions in this psalm. The people observing all this, rejoicing at it, and then singing about it. And we too, as we come into the presence of the Lord to worship him, as we come into that presence of the Lord with the great King, our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we see in the presence of the Lord, the Lord opposing his word to his enemies and driving them away in terror and accomplishing that through that our salvation as well as the salvation of his King, singing this song, rejoicing before the Lord with the king in the blessings of goodness that the king has received. So we see in this psalm, people of God, our great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the blessings of goodness bestowed on him, the crown of pure gold, the everlasting life, the honor and majesty and glory that God gives him. And we see him also fighting against the enemies of the Lord and accomplishing by his word the Lord's purpose of destroying and defeating those enemies for us. And we rejoice with him. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen.